So we might as well jump right into it. Um, and we will introduce today's guest to today's show. Please don't aggregate this. Um, for those of you who don't know him, the great James Herbert outside the NBA on Twitter. Uh, for my money, one of the better Q&A interviewers in the NBA. Um, always love those, in particular, of all the great work you do. Um, but James probably watches more NBA than, than most people. So who better to bring on to kind of bounce around the league and a couple of topics uh, than James Herbert himself. How are you, man? Thanks for coming on. I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. That's a kind intro. I try to be kind. Uh, in a in a cruel world, and a cruel NBA world in particular, kindness and uh, honesty, good values to have. You could just roast all your guests. How would I? How would I go about roasting you? What's there even possibly to roast you for? Oh, a million things. I mean, people. You know, you you can make fun of my takes. You can go at me for being Canadian. My boss does that. Sometimes, um, I've made I've made several Canadian jokes to you over the years. I would think. There you go. You can start there. You can start there. Um, well, let's start talking about the NBA playoffs. We will get to callers and and please call in if you do have a question. Uh, Clayton's already in the queue, um, but I know that James really wanted to preach at the church and temple of Al Horford from the beginning. So. <laughs> Um, I'm just going to tee you up, man. I mean, last night, obviously, I, I believe you finished with 30 points. Uh, obviously, was one of the biggest reasons, along with Jason Tatum, for why Boston managed a, a pretty massive, not win or go home, but basically a, a game that if you don't win, you're facing elimination um, to even things up going back to Boston. Um, appreciate Al Horford, man. What, what's, your, what's your spiel? Give it to me. And that was incredible. That was one of the best games I've ever seen him play. But I think that was just a continuation of what we've seen from him in the playoffs and this season. I mean, I remember at the very beginning of the season, a couple of weeks in, it was it was like, whoa, like, is Al Horford playing better than anyone else in the Celtics right now? Like, he just, he fit in so well defensively right away as he got more comfortable and the Celtics as a team got better offensively and the ball started popping around more. You saw him become this like kind of like super role player for them. And he has been just absolutely a critical part of everything they've done in both of these series. He's done it on both ends. I mean, he's like in his mid thirties and he's playing all NBA caliber defense. He's doing it against like maybe the two best players in the NBA. Um, maybe uh, in in these two series, and then offensively, I mean the the threes that he hit last night just totally punishing the Bucks for leaving him open. He punished the Nets for doing that too, but this was on another level. And then, oh by the way, you're adding like uh, the the stuff that he's doing on the inside whenever he gets a smaller guy on, or he's bullying them like he used to do um, when he was a more featured part of the, the Hawks offense. It's just, it's really nice to see somebody go from being like, you know, the, the best player of a good team in, in his prime to now just being like one of the best role players in the NBA. And he's doing a lot of the same stuff. Um, but he's doing it with lower usage. He, the same type of role defensively, I guess. 
Um, but offensively, I mean, he's just kind of getting in where he fits in and being a, a supporting player and making everybody else better. I mean, when Boston looked at their best last night and they're playing five out, whether it's him or Grant Williams, like throughout this series, those guys have been um, shooting threes with, with such confidence. And then defensively, there's just like absolutely no fear of Giannis's physicality at all. And the, the best example, obviously, was, you know, he gets dunked on and he kind of nods his head. He's like, okay, okay, you're going to stare me down. You're going to get attacked. And then he goes and gets him back. Um, but I, I think that was that that big dunk and the little inadvertent elbow at the same time was kind of emblematic of like how Horford has been playing and stepping up to the challenge more generally in these playoffs. He's just been, he's been absolutely essential to everything the Celtics have done. I love it. It's funny. Last night, uh, watching that, I don't typically watch games with the volume on. I like to watch games with music sometimes. Um, the last night I, ha- I had the, the volume on, and Stan Van Gundy was just like adamant that Grant Williams was the Celtics' best chance at, at guarding Antetokounmpo. And I mean, Oliver did a pretty damn good job for an old man. It was, uh, <laughs> I mean. Grant definitely has his strengths too, and probably obviously has more quickness and lateral foot speed than Alba. I had a call coming in. Um, I think ultimately the re- part of the reasoning why Philly brought Al Horford to the Sixers was because of two things. One, how good he could defend Joel Embiid would then eliminate him to be someone who could guard Joel Embiid. Um, And Uh then also he could be someone who could be their backup center when Embiid was either hurt or during those awful, awful minutes whenever he is on the bench. And I think exactly the length that he's able to throw at guys um, like Giannis we saw last night and like he's done against Embiid in the past might – in this particular matchup be more valuable than foot speed or even physicality. Just the ability to like somewhat match Giannis's length. Like that one play where Tatum was like pretty much guarding Giannis all the way until he got to the paint did like one little head fake and stepped around him late. Um, like that's one of those examples where if you give him one, if you give him one inch, he's going to stick a mile of an arm up and dunk on you. And Horford's length kind of can counteract that. Yeah, I think Horford. I mean, there's a reason why Van Gundy was saying that, right? Like Giannis did have a few plays where he kind of just beat Horford to the spot and he got around him, which he hasn't done much at all to Grant Williams in the series. You saw that a little bit in Game Three as well from from Giannis. But I mean, by and large, Horford has fared extremely well against Giannis, about as well as you could possibly hope for. And you saw him make some plays last night as a help defender too. Some of this was on Milwaukee, like having his man uh, stand in the dunker spot, thereby like activating Horford as a help defender, which like wasn't great. But I mean, he was there and he helped out when Giannis ended up getting a Tatum or a Jalen Brown on him and tried to get his way to the basket. Horford made some plays out of, out of that position as well. I just thought he was everywhere. It, it's funny you bring up Philadelphia because I think, I mean, at least I've gotten a sense that people are like shocked that Horford is playing so well. And yes, last night was an outlier, but like he has been damn good all year. And he was also all damn good in Oklahoma City when 
like he was actually active for that team. He was really good. They were actually a pretty good team with a good defense um, with, with that starting unit there. Um, but the Philadelphia season was obviously just not fun. It was not what the team hoped for. But you can even go back and look. If you look at it at like the lineup stuff, which I bet you have done because you are a Sixers scholar. Um, but if you go back and, and you look at the lineup stuff from that season, um, if you look at the lineups that actually had a decent amount of spacing, uh, the, the, the stats from Horford individually and the stats for like the team with him on the court, they were like, good. They were normal. The, the problem was not that Horford became an entirely different player. It was that you can't just like transform him into a wing. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't, if you are like, yeah, the Celtics could get away with having Al Horford and Robert Williams playing together, but the other three guys in the court are guards and wings. They are shooters. Like the, the, the Sixers were playing, most of the people in their starting lineup out of position. It was a really imposing defensive unit, but it shouldn't have shocked anyone at all. Their offense was like a total slog and it was all clunky and you had multiple guys posting up at the same time and you had every defense packing the paint completely and Harris looked uncomfortable and Horford didn't look like he found his rhythm and like Horford was injured for part of that year too, which also factored into it. But like at no point during that, weird season was Horford a bad player he looked like an overplayed overpaid player because he didn't fit with the the Sixers franchise player um but he was a very good backup and when he had lineups around him that actually made sense then the offense wasn't so bad uh but I mean it, it has been nice to see him back where he was before and playing a smaller but like so important role uh, for a team that has legit chances to, to to win a championship because like you could tell like it, that was just kind of a miserable season for everybody involved and I think because he signed that contract and because it ended badly um, a lot of people just kind of wrote Horford off and then didn't pay attention to him at all when he when he was in OKC which like you know I get that yeah and look I'm looking at the numbers now and. I think we've generally as a NBA community uh, have gotten a little reductive in statistical analysis, but um, I mean, he only shot 35% from three the year in Philly, which honestly, he's only a career 36% three point shooter, which like isn't anything to write home about generally for a big guy, pretty exemplary. But like, I feel like from just anecdotally, I feel like Philly people when they brought in Allen and, and during the season and even now talking about why it failed, I feel like they kind of thought they were getting this like 40% three-point shooter. And last night he looks like that. But even this year when he was reportedly <laughs> shooting better all year long, only knocked down 33% from deep this season. So it's not like he has this consistent stroke, which when it's on, it looks like he looked like he looked last night. But I, I, I do think that, that might have been part of the miscalculation that he was going to be able to be this floor spacer next to Embiid where the threat of his shot could be that. But he's not someone that, like, you're throwing your hands up at the defense when he's taking a wide open three. So I think maybe Philly might have overvalued his shooting in that regard, as much as it's, re- as much as it's been super important for Boston. Yeah, I mean, I think – also, part of it is, like, give him credit for the way that he shot during the playoffs and not just, like, oh, he's shooting 
whatever it is, like five point something a game, and he's making more than half of them, which is nuts. But the fact that, like, he knew, and the Celtics coaching staff knew that these teams were going to ignore him. And they told him, like, if you miss a shot, like, I don't care, like, shoot the next one, shoot them quick, like, shoot them with conviction. And he has done it. Like, there is not much hesitation when the ball finds him on the perimeter at all in this series. Obviously, it's easy to do that last night when the shots are falling. But I think he did a pretty good job in in the Nets series, too. Um, And earlier in this series, regardless of of if he missed his first one or not, like, he would take the second one when the ball found him. Like, I, I think his team has confidence in him shooting, even though he wasn't a knockdown shooter in the regular season. And specifically against the Bucks, that's so important. You have seen other centers over the years. Um, Marcus Gasol is probably the, the best example I can think of uh, having these kind of record scratch moments against the Bucks, And like the, one of the reasons why in that series, the Bucks lost in, in 2019 is, like that coaching staff and his teammates like told him like, no, like we trust you. You have to take that. It's going to be there. That is an opportunity that like that defense is going to give you because it is more important for them to maintain the integrity of their paint protection. And it's more important for them to keep Lopez comfortable in a drop. Um, And if you do that, that is going to like help us help our, the, the sort of health of our offense more generally. And not every big man um, can handle that situation. Some guys get in their own head and just Horford has done it as well as you could possibly hope. Like it, 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 like last night was absolutely wild because he was mixing in the threes with all sorts of other stuff. And the threes, it was like, he, it wasn't, oh, the ball found me. I guess I should take it. It was like, no, like kick it to me. I want this shot and I'm going to like take it the moment it gets to me and I'm going to swish it. And that that is a different kind of thing to deal with, and that's the thing that's going like might end up making the Bucks reconsider uh, their their defensive strategy. That kind of thing is super important. I mean, if we're if you're talking about the the Sixers and all of that, like I think getting guys to accept a role like that and understand they're going to have to take catch and shoot threes, like that is such a big deal for contending teams that have lots of talent. That's something that Tobias Harris struggled with um, up until like, you know, the final few weeks of the the regular season, he's been absolutely incredible uh, in that role during the playoffs. That's something that Jimmy Butler was not very um, (laughs) comfortable doing a a couple of years back on that that 2019 team. Um, And I just, again, like, the Sixers were never going to turn Al Horford into like a three and D guy. Um, and that, that's not even how I would describe him in Boston, but he sure is playing incredibly on defense and the threes are falling. Clayton, you were in the call queue. You want to pop back in? Let's see if Clayton comes in. All right. No call queue from Clayton. So we will continue. Um, what's the series outside of Boston, Milwaukee that a you've enjoyed the most and be the one that you're most intrigued by from a, a chess match standpoint. It, they could be the same answer, but I figure they're probably different. Well, uh, the one I enjoyed the most was maybe Warriors Grizzlies until last night. Um, but last night was like such a like weird, ugly kind of slog of a game that I don't know that I can say that anymore. So now I think this, it's the same answer. It's it's, it's Suns Mavericks. 
that series has been super fun, man. And I just, I love the way Dallas responded. Um, it is kind of wild to see them spreading out Phoenix like they have. You've seen them go at Chris Paul. You've seen them go at guys like Campaign. You've also seen them like, go right at DeAndre Ayton yeah, over and over again. And the the confidence that Luca is playing with is, I mean, it's what you expect from him in the playoffs, but to see what he's done, not just one-on-one, but in terms of just you give one of their shooters a tiny bit of daylight and he's whipping up all over there. And he really made the Suns pay for their kind of inattention to guys like Dorian Finney-Smith and Davis Bertans in that last game. And just the way that the Suns kind of pick defenses apart surgically and how they've done that all year, like that they're getting a like big taste of their own medicine in this series now, um, which – you know, after two games, we weren't sure if, if Dallas was going to quite get there. Uh, the end of game two was so kind of disheartening from Maverick's perspective and how exhausted Luca looked and how helpless he looked defensively and how helpless they looked in terms of covering up for him. Um, so to see them respond the way they have defensively and to see other guys step up offensively and give him some help, like, it, it has been it has been big. Like, it reminds me of what we saw from the Mavericks against the Clippers the last couple of years where, you know, go into both of those series against a team that is maybe the favorite to win the title. And they, they just, they're every bit, they're equal. At least they're looking like it right now. Yeah. And I think it's a testament both to Luca's brilliance, but also, I mean, I remember when Jason Kidd emerged as like the obvious leading candidate for the Dallas job last summer. And there were definitely people on the league who were kind of threw up their hands. We're just like, oh, former player guy. But, like, what the hell did he do in Milwaukee? What did he do in Brooklyn? Like, oh, now he just became an assistant with the Lakers. Like, now he's just going to be a head coach. Like, people kind of were doubting his ability to um, to spearhead a, a legitimate title-contending team. And you know, he gets a ton of credit for the defense. But I think it's also important to note that Sean Sweeney, the assistant that kid brought over there, who's going to get an interview or at least is on the interview list or they requested to interview him uh, with Charlotte, has been yeah. kind of the architect there. But you got to take your hat off to what that coaching staff from kid on down has done just from like upper, like uh, not professionalism, but just like uh, like this, like a veteranness. Like the team ain't scared. None of those guys go into a matchup against Phoenix or knowing the stakes on the other side of the ball in Utah, which we'll get to, um, or just the moment of, of being kind of a team that, I mean, they hadn't won a, that franchise hadn't won a first round series since 2011. And there's the Jalen talk hanging over the entire situation. They're just kind of like a young, unproven team as much as they're not the Memphis Grizzlies, right? Like they had never – no one in that group had really ventured beyond the first round and really had tremendous uh, like extended postseason success. So, I I mean, it's a chess match with a team that just made it to the finals last year and one that has been pretty much the best team wire to wire since the start of last year's regular season. And the Suns purportedly have more talent, like – I think Dallas has proven to be a bit better than people thought. Maybe they're also just all hitting at the right time. Like when you've got 
Reggie Bullock and Dorian Finney-Smith and Maxi Kleba all shooting over 40% from three. You're a much different team than what like I was just talking with a scout today trying to figure out um, potential Rudy Gobert trade destinations if, if and when that ever became a thing in Utah. And Dallas is a team that's often linked as the potential landing spot for him. And like I was saying, I was, I basically posed to this guy, like, why couldn't Maxi Kleba be a legitimate starting center in this league? The way he's been shooting the ball, how he can guard across pretty much down to every position besides like a small diminutive one. Um, and the streakiness from that he's shown this season is kind of all I was told you need to know there. How, I mean, he basically couldn't hit a shot for two months and now he can't miss. But when these guys are all hitting, I mean, Bertans, like you mentioned, too, has found his stride. I mean, Dinwiddie's not the same player he was when he first got to Dallas on that unbelievable hot streak, but he's still doing what he has to do to put pressure on the defense and get to the rim. Like, they've got as good a seven, eight-man rotation, it seems like, as anybody left in this thing. Yeah, I mean, Kleber is effectively – he's not in the starting lineup, but, I mean, he's playing more than Dwight Powell. He's obviously been better than a lot better than Dwight Powell in the series and I mean, part of the like thing that makes the go bear uh, like that kind of storyline interesting is that would totally change the way that that team functions, right? Like the way that they were able to dispense of Utah was spreading them out completely five out and going right at them like one yep. on one. Right. And that is, kind of what they've tried to do and what they've been more successful probably than people thought um, in, in this series with Phoenix too. Uh, Phoenix does not have the same number of weak defenders uh, as the Jazz do on the perimeter, but they're guys that they can attack, especially with the second unit. I think one of the smart things um, is going small against the Sun's second unit because, I mean, Monty will sometimes have – Cam Payne, Cam Johnson, JaVale McGee, Landry Shamit, like all of these guys out there at the same time or three of the four. Uh, And, I mean, you get Brunson or Dinwiddie going downhill against any of these guys with a completely spaced floor. Like that is really difficult for a defense to handle. And they have, I think there's been some pretty intentional moves with the rotation to kind of, make that happen and you know obviously if this is I don't know that like if you look at their defense and their numbers from this year I don't know that that's like totally sustainable for next year I do think getting Rudy Gobert would give them a higher defensive ceiling for all the (laughs) obvious reasons but it is at least interesting to think like all right what do you lose if you go and get this dominant rim protecting center but you're also basically saying our best look offensively when we're five out, we're just like, if we're going to do that, it will mean taking out our second best player forever. You know, <laughs> like that, yeah. that, 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 that's at least like a, a thing to ponder at this point. Well, to be clear in the spirit of the show title, I'm definitely not saying that those conversations are being had. Um, and as I'm going to write tomorrow, at Bleacher Report, a little spoiler alert, um, I really do not expect um, either of Utah's main linchpin pillars to be um, seriously explored on the trade market this summer. Could be really? wrong, but at this juncture, 
Um, I think it'll be more guys on the periphery, complimentary guys like Bogdanovich and Conley and Royce O'Neal. Um, but on but before before we keep going, I just want to say one more thing because you mentioned the Warriors Grizzlies series kind of losing its luster. I think it's pretty lame, fully being fully candid here, how the Grizzlies have handled Jaws injury. And the blame game and the break the code thing and the this was intentional and all that type of stuff. I get it. Like, I understand this is the playoffs and teams, you know, end up getting sick of each other. I mean, Warriors people talk about how much they hate Dylan Brooks, um, how much the players hate Dylan Brooks. Um, you know, it's just to, to go out and say someone intentionally tried to hurt a player or, or his action was the reason why he got hurt. It's, it's just bogus and it's lame and it adds to this whole narrative cycle. That's unnecessary. I would say that to people of Memphis's face. So I'm saying it here. I get the gamesmanship of like complaining about foul calls and blah, blah, blah. But this whole like sparring match of who's the dirtier team, all that shit. Can't can't take it, man. Don't like it. That's my that's my take. No, it's not fun. It felt petty, man. Like, do you think there's any way that we hear all of this stuff about pool if we didn't already have the incident with with Dylan yeah. Brooks and specifically with Kerr um, being so frank and direct, saying it was a dirty play and all of that? No, like, which it, is also why I think it's it comes across as worse because it comes across as like punching back or slapping back when like, yeah. And they're not the same thing. They like, they're not the same same play at all. And the league didn't see it that way. So that's not just me saying it because I definitely didn't think they were the same thing, but the the league didn't either. And you really think Jordan Poole of what, 23, 24 years old, who uh, has only played basketball pretty much his entire life, like knows enough about like the mechanics of a knee to like, push a guy one direction and rip his knee the other. Like, come on. It, just... it didn't even look like, nah, no, no. And that's not to say that like, that Brooks is this like horribly malicious guy who was out to get somebody and injure someone. No, but he did something that was like much more reckless than what Poole did. All right, Clayton, do we have you? You're on. Yes, Mary. sir. There you How go. are you guys? Doing well. What's Thanks happening? Popping on here. So my question has to do with the NBA off season. Let's do it. All right. So I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. And within the last few days, there has been a report out that Portland has been linked to Zach Levine. And this has some Bulls fans worrying, especially after last week, Zach Levine had a questionable exit, uh, you know, interview. And my basic question is, should Bulls fans be worried about a potential Zach Levine exit this summer? So... I believe that that was Brian Windhorst on his podcast um, that got aggregated um, and saying that you know the Blazers are a team to look out for with Levine. I definitely you know, shout out to Brian. I was definitely a little uh, a little annoyed that that stuff got out there because I was kind of trying to save some Levine nuggets for my notebook next week from the combine. But yeah, I, I think his <laughs> comments were not very committal. Right. Um, and I think there's some other details that I don't necessarily want to fully divulge in the spirit of uh, saving some content for that story. But to answer your question directly, like, yeah, wow, Jake, I think there, 
I think there is some reason to, to be concerned. And um, I mean, the DeJounte Murray post is something that wasn't just like a funny little social media post. I mean, there's the obvious Seattle connection there between those two guys. They're both represented by clutch sports. Um, and what I'll say now is, you know, I, and I haven't done enough calls on this yet to really speak uh, fully confidently on, on this part of it all, but there's definitely a lot of talk around the league that you know this was this was supposed to be Zach Levine's team, and he might not apparently view that that's how the Bulls are con- constructed now with Demar being there and. Um, the way the season ended, obviously, wasn't the high note that everyone was hoping for. Um, I mean, at this point, it's still difficult to see. I mean, anyone can get signed and traded now. Like, that's, that's something we've obviously seen the last couple of off seasons. But um, I, I don't see, like, a ton of landing spots that are, are clear better outcome for him because the guy does want to win and um, has said that time and time again. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely not being considered the shut-and-door re-signing that it was a couple of months back. All right, I appreciate it. You got it. James, any thoughts on, on that? Well, I would just say, like, the Portland thing is not that simple. Because if you look at their cap situation, they can basically – I'm not looking at the numbers right now, but they can operate as a team that's over the cap, which seems like the far likeliest scenario. Or if they just cut bait on Josh Hart, who was <laughs> really good for them and seems like somebody that, you know, Damian Lillard probably be excited about building something with and trying to compete and win games with, um, they can theoretically become um, an under-the-tax team and free up some room. But I don't believe it would be easy for them to free up enough room to go and get Zach Levine on a on a full max. I think that would take a little bit of doing just because Damian Lillard makes so much. Even after they cleared out CJ McCollum, they cleared out Norman Powell and Covington and everything. Like from what I can tell, just looking at their their kind of like how they're set up for the future, it seems like it's like, all right, this is the summer of you have a trade exception you can use. You have the full mid-level you can use. You have the biannual exception. The trade exception, by the way, is like 20-something, $20 million, upwards of that, 2021, something like that. Um, they have a good pick in this year's draft. We'll see what happens in the lottery. We'll see if there's a trade that makes sense to use it on or if there's a prospect um, to where they can do something basically like the Raptors did with Scotty Barnes, where it's the one-year tank at the end of the year and then you get a core piece right away that can come in and help you with while you try to compete like that seems like the plan um and yes there there's a world in which whether it's zach levine or another star that we're talking about it is within the realm of possibility that they could operate as a below the cap team and clear a bunch of space and do that but then you are kind of punting on some of the other things you can do and you're sacrificing some talent that you have right now. And uh, I think that just doesn't seem like the, the most likely um, kind of end game to me. Now, could they do a sign and trade? I mean, I guess 
but they already traded a lot of those guys that that you might have thought like they would use in a, in a trade like that back at the deadline when they made those those three deals. So, I mean, it, it would have to be he just desperately wants to play um, in Portland with Damian Lillard, and he'll do whatever to kind of make that happen. Um, and you know, maybe there's like a maybe Anthony Simons is is part of it or something, but like. I don't know. I just it, it would be complicated is all that I'm saying. Would definitely be complicated. Um speaking of complicated, um on the cert I mean, there are certain people involved who would say that it really wasn't. Um, but the the search process and the conclusion of the Kings head coaching interview stretch uh landed on Mike Brown as the new head coach of Sacramento, the seventh head coach during Vivek Ranadive's tenure as owner. Um, Coming after, you know, I wrote about it, Mark Stein wrote about it, I believe Sam Amick wrote about it as well at The Athletic. There was a lot of talk around the league that Mark Jackson was the guy that Vivek Ranadive wanted. Um, But also Vivek had been telling uh, colleagues around the league for a while that this was general manager Monty McNair's show to run. And they end up getting their guy in Mike Brown, which I think, one, quiets a lot of the palace intrigue questions with Sacramento for now. Um, we'll see how long that continues, knowing how things have operated there in the past. But, um, <laughs> I mean, they seem to be on an aligned trajectory at this point. And Kings people that I've talked to are still pretty pumped about the Demontis Sabonis deal. Um, being that, you know, they feel like they got a pretty big win in getting a two-time All-Star at, at 25 without giving up a pick. Um, and as great as Tyrese Halliburton is, as, as highly regarded as he is around the league, like there's really no – there's no guarantee that he's that he ever develops into like a multi-multi-time All-Star that's, that, he, that he, does, he does have the upside for. That Obviously, the Pacers are hoping he becomes um, – and, you know, in talking with people, it seems like the Pacers fully value Halliburton as their point guard of the future. Um, but, you know, back to the Kings, like, they've, so they've got Sabonis, they've got potentially another all-star caliber guard in, in, in De'Aaron Fox. And, they, you know, Davon Mitchell was, was a pearl of last year's draft, and there's more moves to make than other pieces on the roster like Dante DiVincenzo they'll have to figure out, but they've got Mike Brown now on a four-year deal. What say you, James Herbert, about the marriage of coach and franchise and the personnel on that roster? I'm happy for Mike Brown. I, I yeah. think I mean, he was the defensive coordinator for an elite defense this year in the Warriors. Um, I think Steve Kerr has just spoken – a ton about how important he has been to that staff over the years. He did a, an amazing job with the Nigerian national team last summer. I don't know how many of those games you watch, but like those guys were super fun to watch. Um, and if the Kings are playing it like that fast to pace and getting shots up like that, like I like that's kind of like the way they should be playing probably. Right. Um, but I mean, th- there's some issues with the roster, dude. Like I, I am curious about what else McNair does. Um, I'm curious about what happens with DiVincenzo, obviously, but like you look at if that's if those three are your guys right now, um, Fox, DiVincenzo, and Sabonis, like you're at a shooting deficit from the start. Um, defensively, like you're a little bit small 
um, at the two and the five, kind of. I mean, he's, I shouldn't say small, but like Sabonis is not a rim protector. Um, so that means you want a specific type of player next to him if possible. Um, but you, there aren't like Robert Covingtons that are just growing on trees everywhere who it's like, oh, like here's a guy that will like protect the rim for you and he'll shoot threes and he'll switch and, and all of this. Uh, so it'll be a challenge to make this team into one that makes sense. And, and I think that falls on not just the coaching staff, but like very obviously the front office. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess my other takeaway is like, are the Kings just going to hire as many people as possible who have worked for the Warriors? Just like every couple of years, just another person who was either, who has been on Kerr's staff just over and over and over again. Like it, it is, it is getting pretty funny and not even just people who have been on curb staff. Like, like Michael Malone was with the Warriors before yeah. he was with the Kings. Like this goes, even Pete, Pete Delisandro was back. with the Warriors before he was with Denver, before Sacramento hired him there. Yep. And it could have been Mark Jackson. Al- Alvin Gentry was a Warriors guy. Luke Walton was a Warriors guy. Exactly. Um, and of course, Vivek Ranadive was a minority owner. Of the Grizzlies or, or of the Warriors, excuse me, before he took over in Sacramento. So, and there are worse franchises to like poach from for sure. Um, so I, I like that they are aspiring to be that way. It's just like they have a very different type of team. And like you mentioned, the, the they're high on the Sabonis trade and all of that. And like it, the whole thing just makes me feel so weird because it puts me in an uncomfortable position because I've been such a Sabonis fan for lack of a better word like I thought he was really really good before he was he became the player that that he is now uh, I wrote about him like the first year in Indiana um and it's been really cool to watch him develop into a multi-time all-star as you said but I I hated that trade like I just when you get somebody like Halliburton it just it doesn't really make sense to me to, to give up on him so soon and make this sort of short-term play, or at least that's how I saw it. Not Sabonis isn't old or anything, but it was just so early to trade Halliburton. And I do think he has a big, a higher ceiling. Um, and he's already kind of proven to the league that he has a higher ceiling than most teams thought in the draft because he wouldn't have fallen to where he was if people, if most teams didn't think he was like a high-end role player. He's clearly more than that. Uh, and I think he has shown what he can do as a playmaker. Uh, he is, just an all-around better offensive player than anybody gave him credit for. And I think he started to show that in Sacramento and all, all the things he did in Indiana was just an extension of that. So it's hard for me to totally get on board with what they're doing. Um, but I I want to at least see what Brown does um, on offense with those those guys, that were, those main guys that we talked about. And then I want to see if the front office can figure out some like more complementary parts to make them a competent defense. James, I know you got to run in a minute, um, so I want to flip the tables around now. I typically save this for the very, very end of the hour, but um, you know, I've asked you a couple questions here. We got a question from Clayton. You don't have to, but do you, sir, have any questions for me? Yeah. Um, tell me the future. Tell me. Give me. Give me. <laughs> no, you're you're an insider. You've already hinted. Um, about some stuff you have coming about Zach Levine. Uh, I want to know what, I'll, let's go, let's go to the uh, coaching searches. What do you, what do you know about what's happening in Charlotte? Because you know me, 
you know that I have been a huge fan of what James Rago was building there. You I are think not alone. Kind of, I think it is BS that he is out of a job right now. Um, but, you know, I'm happy he'll still get to take Jordan's money for the next couple of years. That's nice. Uh, but I don't really know what the hell they're doing. Um, and I'm quite interested in how this coaching search, uh, plays out. And you've had some Intel on that over the past little while. So I'm wondering what, what's happening right now. So the latest I've been told there is, I mean, like you said, a lot of people around the NBA, especially in the coaching community, but, um, even in rally front offices, you know, they were very surprised and disappointed that Borrego did lose the position and were complimentary of the job that him and his staff did there. Um, and also to your point, like pretty good thing for him that he'll get to do as he pleases the next couple of years and still get paid, which, um, you know, from my understanding, he's got uh, a kid in high school. So, you know, to at least kind of hang out a bit. And he's got a couple of kids and spend some time with family and all that type of stuff seems like um, kind of like a gift of an opportunity in the NBA uh, constant churn. But, I mean, obviously, you know, when you take a job like that and you're involved in it for um, three, four years, like you want to be a part of it. You want to keep growing it together. And it, it, I feel like a lot of people there and around the league feel like he just got – the rug pulled out from under him uh, unfairly, like you said. Um, but this, the, the, the decision happened, and, um, you know, part of the reason why it was surprising also was because the Hornets do have this reputation for being one of the more frugal franchises out there, right? Um, yeah. I've heard from a couple of people that, like, they do want to kind of push their chips into the table here and that they're going to be willing to pay up for a guy. And uh, some people even said that they might be willing to, with, with the future of Mitch Kupchak being uncertain as it's been for a couple years now, uh, although he is there and running the thing day to day and running the search by all accounts. Um, you know, Apparently the Hornets are telling candidates and represent representatives of candidates and all that jazz that like they might be willing to pay up and, and give someone a president coach dual role. Um, which would be kind of a major turn of events from the Hornets being, you know, known to be frugal to, to take out their checkbook and really try to cement their franchise with like a big name. And, and that name that everyone keeps talking about right now is Mike D'Antoni. Like that's, I don't know if he's going to get the job, but he's the name that everyone seems to believe is, is in the, the driver's seat. Um, but, you know, like we talked about Sacramento, Mark, Mark Jackson did seem to be the front runner in Sacramento until, you know, I don't know specifics, but there was definitely a lot of talk that there were people involved kind of bringing questions about Jackson to, um, to Vivek. And I didn't read Ethan Strauss's Substack story yet, but it sounds like a lot of those types of details uh, were mentioned in Ethan's story. Um, so, I mean, and Mike D'Antoni is not a divisive character by any stretch. Um, he's someone no. that I think his only real purported weakness is is defense. Um, and his biggest supporters will tell you that uh, he was, you know, pretty uh, amenable to the switching style that Houston ran. And, you know, he actually 
can oversee a good defense if, if, if and so he chooses to so. Um, but I think the main idea is clearly to try to use him to optimize on the ball, just like D'Antoni did with Steve Nash and James Harden uh, after him. So that's kind of where I think things stand right now. I mean, they will look to interview a bunch of other candidates, and they've already requested permission on a few. Um, but D'Antoni does seem to be the, the leader in the clubhouse at this point. So they don't have a problem with getting rid of Borrego in theory because they weren't good enough defensively and then hiring somebody like D'Antoni when they already had an elite offense. That does seem to be the case. <laughs> cool. It's definitely a, it's definitely a head scratcher. And, and does does D'Antoni is he interested in having like like running a front office at the same time as being a coach? Does he want that responsibility? Do you know? Because most uh, that's not been in vogue basically since Doc Rivers and Thibodeau were doing it, and Stan Van Gundy, and it it all those situations kind of blew up. It has not been in vogue, um, but maybe that's the type of thing that. Charlotte would need to convince a coach like for example Kenny Atkinson the Hornets requested permission to interview him and I'm not speaking for Kenny Atkinson but I talked to multiple people around him or who have worked with him let's say who all kind of said the same thing that like for someone like Kenny who had a pretty good stint in Brooklyn you saw it very up close and personal James like he great he still he still might not get another shot after this next shot he'll get another shot but Kenny isn't a former player um, or someone who looks like a lot of players, let's say, in this current era that we're in, where, like, he might really only have one more chance at, at a head job. And is Charlotte, with all these questions about their roster and their front office, really a situation that someone like him would want to kind of risk his last shot at getting cementing himself in the status of the Terry Stotts and the Mike D'Antoni's who I guess Terry only had one job too, but um, you know, the Steve Clifford's and the Mike D'Antoni's who continue to get interview opportunities. Right. Um, So maybe that's what they would have to do in order to convince someone like that or Mike D'Antoni to to come to that situation that's purportedly, you know, uncertain and flux. So that's the only thought I have on that front, but um, you know, D'Antoni, I think, is definitely looking for another job. And, yeah. um, you know, I think the Philly thing that's been out there forever, it really doesn't seem, I, I, my read on it is it really doesn't seem like that's going to be an opening right now. Um, I don't think the Lakers are a match either. So this might really be his best shot this season. And if that's the case, I think he would be, from what I've understood, pretty energized and excited by the idea to work with a talent like Lamelo. Yeah, fine. Listen, like I love D'Antoni Ball, and <laughs> I didn't even mean to do that pun, but um, like Lamelo would be great, and just I guess he would be a little more ball dominant than he was um, under Borrego. Which was it's something like only... he said in that Slam article that he wanted yeah. to do. Yeah, but. It is just weird to me that that they would make this kind of move because Hornets played like maybe the prettiest offense in the entire NBA. Like and a I lot thought, of coaches they, I talked to said they were one of the hardest teams to scheme for and prepare for. Yeah. 
And they, they, yeah, they had a like bad defensive numbers on the year, but they had several stretches, including the last bit of the season where they were above average. And they did that with like well below average talent, in my opinion. And they did that. A lot of it was because directly of Borrego's coaching, right? Like they they tried to be really unpredict- unpredictable. They changed schemes constantly throughout games, possession to possession, game to game. Uh, they, you know, basically threw out a lot of gimmicky stuff, like a lot of full court pressure, a lot of different types of zones, um, just trying to make teams uncomfortable, trying to be an annoying team to play against, especially if you happen to be you know, on a back-to-back or on, a, like, your third game in five nights or whatever it is. You just didn't want to deal with them. They were going to try to turn you over. They were going to run like crazy. They were going to run off of makes. Um, and LaMelo, like, to me, LaMelo had, like, a ton of freedom in that system. And he had a ton of space to work with, too. Uh, defensively, it was a big challenge. But, like, you know, they didn't have great wing defenders. They didn't have great rim protection and the, like some of their best offensive players, like Lamelo, Harry Rozier, like these guys are just like, they're just flat out, like not good defenders. Um, and Rozier, like particularly like he's just small for a two guard and Lamelo is bigger, but you don't want him guarding big wings. Like not at this stage of his career. He's not even close to ready for that. So I think they were just at a big disadvantage at that end every night and they tried to make up for it and they did better than like, maybe they even should have for that talent. So it's just weird for me, but yeah, of course, D'Antoni would be super fun with that roster. <laughs> um, I agree with all the above. Um, all right, man. Do you have anything you want to plug before I let you go? Oh God. Uh, not really. Read my work at uh cbssports.com in the NBA section. I guess I do dumb tweets at, at outside the NBA. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you to everyone who listened live and who will be listening archived. Um, we will be back on Friday. Um, not sure what time yet, but John Hollinger is expected to be Ooh. the guest. So looking forward to talking to John as much as I enjoyed and look forward to talking with you today, James. Missy, man, thanks for popping on here, and I really do appreciate it. See you, buddy.